Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you, everybody. It's great to see you all this morning. It's great to see some new faces on the front row. I'm liking this. Could we make this a permanent fixture? This would be, this would be really great, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for responding and coming forward, those that came forward. It's good to be close together, not to be separated and far apart. God's people are meant to be together, shoulder to shoulder, as Ben reminded us uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Great word, by the way, Ben. Um, we're going to continue with Joshua. Can I just have a show of hands for those who were here last week when Richard um, launched us into Joshua? Hands up. It's not, it's not the walk of shame for those that weren't, I promise. Um, it's just good to know those that were here. Um, apparently, the best PowerPoint ever, according to David. Now, we do call David, amongst the eldership, we call him the, the um, PowerPoint king. So you didn't realise quite what an accolade that was for Richard to have a PowerPoint as the best ever PowerPoint. And for me, it was an interesting PowerPoint, which is far and far, far between, to be honest with you. Um, I don't have a flashy PowerPoint this morning, um, but what I do have is the Word of God for you. And I'd like to build on um, some of the themes that Richard introduced to us last week. Um, I really believe it's going to be a, a, a huge blessing to spend time in the book of Joshua. I'm like Rich. I like to get into the Old Testament. And um, I want to do everything I can to encourage you in the Old Testament. Um, and um, we really felt led to the book of Joshua in the last couple of months. We really believe it's right for where we are at as a body of people. So this is not just a Bible study in Joshua. This is because we believe this is where God wants us to be. Um, so would you just turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. We're going to read the first few verses. I'm going to be reading them in the ESV this morning. You can read along in your own translations or just listen um, as you prefer. So starting at verse 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So that's the commissioning of Joshua. This was a massive moment, as Richard outlined for us last week. This was a massive moment not only for Joshua, it was a massive moment for God's people, for the people of Israel, because they just lost Moses who had led them through the desert 
And there's no one like Moses. He was an iconic figure, never to be repeated. In fact, in um, the closing part of Deuteronomy, it talks about Moses and it said, there's not arisen a prophet since Israel, a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. How would you like to follow that? Can you put yourself in Joshua's shoes? <laughs> this was a big moment and maybe probably most definitely an intimidating one for Joshua. And that's why God is encouraging him at this commissioning. Don't be fearful, don't be dismayed, but be strong and be courageous. And God provides some specific instructions to him that I want us to look at this morning because I believe those instructions are not only for the people of Israel and and was right for them at the time, but I believe that they're right for us in the here and now as well. I believe they're to lead us for where God wants us to go. So this chapter, chapter one, it's the beginning of a new section in the word because the first five books of the Bible, which Richard explained to us is the Torah, marks a specific period and then we come into a new period of entering the land that God had been promising for so long. It marks a transition not only from one leader to another, but also one phase to another phase in Israel's history. And that change in phase was going to require some changes in them. And that's where we need to focus this morning. God promises Joshua, we've just read, he said, every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I've given to you. That's a wonderful promise. And he also says twice in verse 7 and verse 9, he says, wherever you go, wherever you go, I'll give you good success. Wherever you go. What's interesting immediately is that God is saying, wherever you go, I'll give you success. Wherever your feet tread, that land I've given you. But then immediately God sets some boundaries to that straight away. And he outlines the geographical boundaries that he's setting for his people uh, in this land that he's brought them to. And so we can see straight away that there's a partnership between God's people and him. Wherever they go, they would have been successful. But God says, I want you to go here. And it's like that for us. Wherever God will plant you, you will be a success because you're God's children. Because God's mercy and his blessing will follow you every day of your life. But we're not free to go wherever we want to go. We are to go where he sends us. We're to go within the boundaries that he's set for us. And what's really important is that we understand where God is sending us. And in the last few weeks and months, God has been speaking to us clearly about listening specifically to where God is sending us and then being obedient to to go. And not only that, but how we go is really important. It's really easy just to respond and say, yeah, I'll go, and to shoot off. But actually, how we go is really crucial. And the set of instructions that we have here in chapter 1 that God gives to Joshua are very specific instructions because they were to go in a very specific way into Canaan. If they went in the way that God had told them to go, then they would have the success that God had promised them. So the partnership we see is between God and Israel and in the way that they were to go into the land. And and God says three specific things to Joshua. In verse 7 he says, don't turn to the right or the left of my instruction. Don't deviate from my instructions. Not at all, but stay with my instructions. Second thing he says is this, is to meditate and confess his word day and night. In other words, that the place I'm sending you into, you're going to need the word of God to be in your heart and on your tongue, wherever you go. You need to be meditating on the word of God. I just want to say just an aside here, because we often talk about getting into the word. And I was just talking about this recently with, um, we were talking about it in our life group. And I think a lot of people, when they hear that, encouragement you need to get into the word if I said to John you need to be in the word John now what John hears may be different to what I intend 
Because when a lot of people hear that instruction or encouragement, what they think is, I need to read massive chunks of scripture. In fact, John's planning to go home right now and plan his whole afternoon has been planned out now around, I've got to get through the whole of the book of Joshua because I've got to get into the word. That's not what we mean. I mean, you're free to do that, John, if you want to. But that's not what we mean when we say it's good for us to get into the word. In Colossians, it says that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. It's about the richness of the experience, not about the volume. It's quality, not quantity. So when we say get into the word, that could be just one verse for you. But take one verse and chew it over for days. Keep thinking about it. Go back to it. Ask the Lord what he thinks about it. Ask the Spirit to tell you about it. Ask the people around you what they think about it. And God will enable you to get more and more out of such a small part of the Scriptures. So when we say get into the Word, that's what we mean. Just want to be really clear. And that's what God was saying to Joshua. You need to get into the Word so that you're living it and breathing it. Not just in the daytime, but in the evening as well. In other words, it's sweating out of your pores at night, even as you sleep. And that's where we need to be as God's people. And then the third thing he says is, in verse 8, he said that he will make your way prosperous. It says, for then you will make your way prosperous. And there's another principle here in what God is saying, is that wherever God's people go, they make it a place of prosperity. When I read this, it reminds me of Psalm 84, which is one of my favourite psalms, so it's easy for me to remember. But it's about coming into the presence of God, and it talks about those who dwell in the sanctuary of God. And one of the verses in there, I think it's verse 5, it says that they will go through the valley of Baca, which means weeping, and make it a place of joy, or a place of springs. And there is a principle that wherever God's people go, that because of who they are and what's in them, or let me put it this way, wherever you go, because of what's in you and what's in me, wherever we go, we can turn it from a place of sadness to a place of joy, a place of pain to a place of peace and healing, that we are the haven of health, we are the haven of joy, we're the haven of strength wherever God sends us. And that's the principle that God is explaining to Joshua This is why you've no need to be fearful or dismayed. Because wherever I send you, if you're obedient to me and you don't turn to the right or the left, you'll have success. And wherever you go, if it's a place of sadness, it will become a place of joy. Because you will make it that way. And that's how we need to start to see ourselves as God's people. So Joshua only had to be faithful to God's instruction to see success. That was the key for him. If he was faithful to God's instruction, then he had no cause to fear the great challenge that they were facing as they came into Canaan. And let's not underestimate the size of the challenge that they were facing coming into Canaan. The repeated theme that we've got throughout this book is that God gives the land to the people, but then he says, you've got to go in and claim it. And that's a foreshadow of the Christian life. When you came into the kingdom of God, you immediately inherited everything that Christ has won. But you have to go and claim that inheritance. If you and I were living in a different country, many, many miles from here, and we had a relative in this country that was very, very rich, that died one day, and then when the executors of that person's will were searching for their relatives, they went all the way down the line until they found you, and they sent you a letter to say, great news, you've inherited all of this fortune. If you stayed where you were, do you think you'd benefit from that inheritance at all? You would have to come and claim that inheritance. You'd have to turn up in person to get that inheritance. And that's what it's like for us. We've inherited everything that Christ has earned for us. But we have to claim that inheritance. And God was saying, this is your boundary. This is what I've allotted to you. Now you need to go and claim it. And I believe God has been saying that to us really clearly in the last 12 to 18 months. That we, as a body of people, Living Rock Church, 
have been allotted a boundary. And that boundary has increased significantly. But we haven't yet filled the boundary. But God is saying, now is the time to go and claim that which I've given you. And that's why it's important for us to listen, to know where God is sending us, and then to be obedient in going. But very importantly, as God said to Joshua, to go in the right way. If we go in the right way, we'll have success. So Joshua then comes out of God's presence and he goes and gives an instruction to the people. And the instruction is in verse 11. So if you can put verse 11 up for me. There we go. This is what Joshua then says. He says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So from his commissioning, Joshua then comes out to the people and he needs to instruct the people on what to do next to respond to God's instruction. And the first thing that happens is that Joshua says to his commanders, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. So the first requirement from Joshua's commissioning is that the command of God was to go from him to his leaders and from the leaders to the people. But what's interesting for me is this word, the midst of the camp. It's a Hebrew word, kefreb, which means the inward part. And it always refers to the most inner part of a person or a thing or an organisation. In other words, you can't get more inward than this word. So the command of God came from God to Joshua. It came to his leaders and then it was to pass through the midst of the camp. In other words, what they were bringing were not instructions from Joshua, but they were bringing instructions from God himself. They were bringing the rule of God through the camp. To be successful in what God had told them to do, the first thing that had to happen was that the rule of God had to run right through the heart of the camp of Israel. It had to run right through the heart of every single person in the camp of Israel. Without that, they weren't going to be successful. We're talking about the lordship of God needed to be evident in the camp. God had given a specific instruction in verse 7 to Joshua, do not turn from the right or the left. So God was being very specific with them and saying, look, you've got to do exactly as I tell you. And therefore, you need to be under my rule. You need to be submitted to me. Now, the people of Israel had gone through 40 years in the desert. It took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of Israel, if I can put it that way. He got the Israelites out of Egypt, but then he had to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And it took 40 years and a generation to die off in the desert to get them to this point. And now Joshua was saying, the rule of God needs to run through the midst of this camp. And it needs to run through the heart of every single person. It's no coincidence, as far as I'm concerned, that when God led them to enter Canaan, that they entered the centre point of Israel. For those who were here last week, Richard put a map up on the screen, and you can see Israel from north to south, and they came up through the desert and they entered. Jericho was kind of the midpoint, the centre point. There's no coincidence that God led them to start the campaign at that point. They struck at Jericho and had that early success that then sent fear around the southern kings and their kingdoms. And then the campaign continued all the way through, routing out their enemies in the south, and then up into the north to rout their enemies in the north. So actually, a people whose rule, the rule of God, ran through their heart, were able to strike at the heart of the enemy that God was sending them to. And it had to be that way. But it wasn't always the case and we're given an example if you just turn with me very briefly we go past 
The fall of Jericho is in chapter 6. And then they have an early snag in the plan. Into chapter 7, which is where Israel goes up against Ai. And they're defeated. And they don't understand why. But then God says to them that this happened because they broke faith. That's verse 1 of chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carni, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So there was just one amongst them who turned to the right or to the left. Because when God sent them to Jericho, he said, I'm going to give Jericho into your hands. And when Jericho falls, you are not to take anything. And we find repeatedly through Joshua, when they conquered places, there were some things that were devoted to the Lord, and there were the rest of it which was devoted to destruction. And at Jericho, God said, apart from these things, these things, which was the gold and silver, are devoted to me and will go to the temple. But everything else is devoted to to destruction but there was just one amongst them who got distracted there was one amongst them who took some of those things and so we go through a process where God singles out individual clans and families and comes all the way down to one individual and that poor individual was a man called Achan who is now forever remembered for what he did sad isn't it If you go to chapter 7 and verse 20, we get to the point in the story where Achan has been singled out. And it says, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And we read the rest of the story last week. Is What then happens is, is that he is put to death. Him and all of his family are put to death. This was, whatever we think about what happened, we know that this was really serious. Because this was deviating from God's instruction. And this man had laid his hands on things that belonged to the Lord. In fact, some of your Bibles may say it was a Babylonian cloak. Some of the um, more modern translations will use that phrase, a Babylonian cloak. Because the Shinar was a plain, it was the area of Babylon. And these cloaks were made with idolatrous symbols on. They were often made only for royalty, from the very best of materials that were available. Some people speculate that this may have even been the cloak that belonged to the king of Jericho. And what happened to Achan is that he got distracted. He was looking at things that he shouldn't have been looking at. And this is often how God's people get distracted and turn to the left or the right, is that we start looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at. Sometimes those things seem quite legitimate at the time, or they seem just quite harmless. But it leads into a a chain of events And in Achan's um, case, he saw the cloak. But then it says in verse 11 of chapter 7, it says, talking about um, Achan, it says, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So God was saying there is one amongst you who has stolen something and lied about it. So first of all, we've got distraction And then we have deception. I think Achan deceived himself, first of all. And he said, that's not going to hurt. It's just a nice cloak. It would be a shame if it went to waste. That's probably what he thought. So he thought, well, I'll take that so that doesn't get destroyed. But God had said, nothing are you to keep. And then it led to deception of others because he hid those things under the ground in his tent he couldn't show anyone else so he knew it was wrong and he knew he had to hide it from other people 
And sometimes things that start out as a distraction become a deception to ourselves and then we have to deceive others. We have to hide things from others so that they don't see. And eventually for him, it put him on a path to destruction. Distraction became deception, became destruction. Now this might seem like a really extreme example. And I'm not for one moment saying that people are hiding Babylonian cloaks in their back gardens. But there are lots of things that can distract us as God's people from the path that he set us on. I've seen it time and again, not only in my life, but in the life of those around me, is that people get distracted with things. And often that is how the enemy works. You see, the rule of God was supposed to run through that camp. But Achan, it didn't run through his heart, did it? There was, he was obviously not fully submitted to God. And where there's an area of your life that isn't submitted to God, that's what the enemy uses as a foothold. To tempt you, to distract you, to take you away from the path that God's got you on. To deviate to the left or to the right. That's the only way he can deny you the success that you've inherited. The success that is due to God's people is to distract us in some way. And then gain a foothold. And I think when I was reading this, the Spirit just said to me, does the Lordship of Christ that you profess run through every area of your life? We often talk about um, God being in charge of our life like rooms in a house. I think it's a really good picture. That there are lots of rooms in the house of your life and God may have free reign in lots of rooms but maybe there's just one room or maybe a couple of rooms. Maybe it's a little attic room or a cupboard somewhere that you keep locked and you don't let God in there. Or you don't let God have free reign in there. But you like to decide when that room gets open. You keep the key. I think that those things are the things that bring us down. They're the things that hold us back. Let me read to you from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I just want to to get you to have a think about whether there are things in your life like that. Just to be really honest with yourself. Are there rooms in the house that really you're holding the key for. You might let the Holy Spirit there occasionally when you feel comfortable, but it's only when you say so. Because here's the thing. If the Holy Spirit can only go into a place when you allow him to do that, then he's a guest in your house. When we have guests in our home, I don't know about you, but if we have guests, generally we don't let them go into every room in the house. Now, I don't say that when people come in my house. I don't say, you can go here, 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 do not go over there. But it's, it's an unspoken rule that people that come into my home are not just going to walk into my bedroom, in my bathroom, and go wherever they like, because it's my house. So they will stay in the communal areas of the house, and there are some areas that are, we agree, are maybe out of bounds, unless I say so. But you know what? I think we do genuinely treat the Holy Spirit like that. And God has caught me up on this recently. If the Spirit needs permission to go into places in your heart, he's a guest. And the Holy Spirit is not a guest. He's Lord of the home. He's Lord of the house. So I can only stand here and say, he's my Lord if I don't decide where the Spirit goes in every part of my life, if I don't hold the key to every room, if I don't need to give him permission. We often talk about the Holy Spirit as a gentleman and he'll only go where we give him permission 
And I'm not sure about that. Because the Spirit of God is terrifying in all his fullness. And if he is truly Lord, then we have to be honest with ourselves and say, am I holding the key to a room in my heart? I want to give you a practical instruction. I believe one of the ways in which we can help ourselves in this area is discipleship. Discipleship. We talk about discipleship occasionally, but I think discipleship needs to be something we talk about a lot more. I think it needs to be pervasive in the culture of the church. Let me tell you what I mean by discipleship. Discipleship is where you have someone else in the body of Christ who stands alongside you, believing with you for the things that God has spoken into your life and helping you get there. That's it. They may be at the same point in their Christian walk as you. They may be of the same level of maturity. They may be older and more mature than you. You may have both. Sometimes people are younger than you and they're discipling you because of something that God has put in them. But there are things that we struggle with. And if, like Achan, we become isolated in those struggles, we lie to ourselves about the progress we're making, then we start to be deceptive with others and we keep those things closed off and buried under the ground, hoping that no one will ever turn them up. I'm just being really honest here, folks. This is what God has spoken to me. So discipleship means talking to those that we feel comfortable with and close to, saying, look, this is an area I'm not getting to grips with. This is an area I'm holding the key, and I know I've got to stop doing that. Would you help me? And how they help you is that you become accountable to them. So that when you see each other, you say, how are you doing with that? It's a lot harder then to hold back when you've given someone permission to ask you that question. And that's what discipleship is. Find someone, tell them what you're struggling with, and give them permission to ask you at any time they see you how you're doing. And it'll be the best thing you ever did. So I want to encourage you. I want to see in this body so many more partnerships of discipleship. People being discipled by others and discipling others. And I believe everyone here can disciple someone else and needs to be discipled themselves. So I just want to encourage you to think about that today, but not just right now as I'm speaking. Go to the Lord, because he will show you where you're holding the key to a room. And he will show you those that you can trust to disciple you and to help you to give those things up and see the will of God in your life. Folks, if we are to be fit for the fight, we've got to deal with these things now. If we're to go into the land and take what God's got for us and not deviate to the left or the right, we've got to deal with these locked rooms now. Not later. God is saying now. So that's why I'm encouraging all of us to go to God in prayer and ask him. The next thing that then Joshua says is that they were to prepare, going back to chapter 1, verse 11, prepare your provisions. If anyone's got a really old, oh gosh, I was going to say old-fashioned translation. Uh, for, for the, I know there's at least one KJV reader here, so please don't be offended by that. But the more older, more literal translations might use the word vigil. Anyone heard of the word vigil? Anyone over 50 should have heard of the word vigil. Because that's roughly when it came, went out of fashion. So as I understand it, because I'm not 50 yet, not quite. <laughs> not quite. But vigil is a provision, but it's, it's like a preparation for a journey. Um, and actually, the word in Hebrew comes from a root word, which means to hunt, and to hunt game. So actually, it's, if you were going, you know, walking in the wilderness, and you might hunt some game and keep that with you to sustain you through a journey. In this case, to sustain the people of God through a warfare campaign. 
And what's interesting about this is that Joshua says, prepare your provisions for in three days we're crossing over. Think about the context just for a minute. They've been in the desert for 40 years. 40 years. And now God was saying, now's the moment. Three days, it's all coming to a head. You're going in. For 40 years, they had manna from God every day. They just got used to a daily provision from God. But they were changing. They were shifting from one phase to another phase. So God was now saying, look, this is how it's been for 40 years, but things are going to change. And in fact, within a matter of days, as soon as they crossed the Jordan, the manna dried up because they didn't need the manna anymore when they came into Canaan. It was a land full of plenty. But God was saying, prepare your provisions, even though you're going into a land of plenty. Why was he saying that? Because they were going to need them, obviously. They were going to need them in the days ahead, in the days of battle. Maybe the manna that they received in the desert was enough to sustain them walking through the desert, but was not maybe enough to sustain them in the heat of battle. I don't know. But God was saying, this is a change now. I think that in the days ahead, they were going to need to draw on these reserves, these vigils, because there were going to be tough days ahead, and they were going to need to draw on a reserve of provisions to help them get through. When I was reading this, I really felt that for us as God's people and us as Living Rock Church, that because we're shifting from one phase to another, we've gone through a shift. We keep talking about that. But I believe one of the really practical things that needs to happen as part of this shift is that there are many in the body here, many that aren't here today. Maybe you're listening on the podcast. You've been in a time of preparation that might feel like 40 years. Maybe it is 40 years, literally. And God is saying, enough. You've had enough preparation for this. Now is the time when I want you to go into battle. And I want you to draw from the provision that I've put in you. You see, I believe there is a storehouse in every single one of us of the things that God has sowed into us over the years through others and directly from him. And those things have been put in each of us for the heat of battle. They've been put in each of us to draw from in the days of battle. And to go into Canaan, God is saying, it's time to stop living a daily dependence and time to draw on the storehouse. Now just to be clear, the picture of manna is about receiving from God daily, and that still applies. But I believe there is a storehouse within each of us that's not just for us when things get tough, but also for others. In fact, the Gibeonites who came to the Israelites and deceived them to letting them into the camp, they were fed by Israel. They were looked after by Israel. I just believe God is saying to many of us here in this body that your time of preparation is over. But let me just be really clear. Thus saith the Lord. God says, the Lord is saying, your time of preparation is over. That doesn't mean that God isn't going to shape you and change you and grow you from here. But it means that we've got to go from being fed to being feeders. Not just those who are fed, but those who are feeding others. Part of the shift for us will be an influx of new believers and Christians who are young in faith. And I believe everyone here that's been here and been fed here has a storehouse to feed them, to disciple them. And that is what God wants to do. When Ben spoke a few weeks ago, he said, we don't get there unless we all get there. This is what he meant. That we, this is all of us. That in order for us to shift and grow and change and for God to expand us, every single one of us has got to be someone who is 
on the boundaries, right on the front line, and is drawing from the storehouse for others that God will bring to us and those that we will go out and get, the lost sheep. And you may sit there and think, well, there's lots of talented people around. There's lots of gifted people around. Do you know what? There will always be talented and gifted people around. They are annoying. I agree. (laughs) We all get annoyed by them, don't we? You know, there's people that seem to do everything really well. But you know what? They're just an excuse for us not to do anything in the end. Because that's what it boils down to. We make these excuses, but you know, when you and I are standing before the throne of God and we say, yeah, but you know what? Brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, they were so good. I felt, what was the point in me doing anything? How could I compete? How can I follow that? And God will say, yeah, but what did I put in you? What did I give you? Because I gave you something that was different to what they had. I gave you an individual and unique expression of my grace and my mercy that you were to give to others. And I had specific people in mind for you to give them to. And that excuse just won't wash, folks, before the throne of God. So I want none of us to miss that. I want all of us to get there. And I want all of us to be at 100% of the potential and gifting that God has put in each of us, which is different to everybody else in the room. It may be of a different measure, but it doesn't mean it's less important or less necessary in the plan that God has got for us. And I will keep saying this, until we get it and until we start to embrace it until we start to do it because I won't be satisfied unless everybody in this body is fulfilled in all the gifting and calling that God has put in you it's in my heart to see that evident amongst this body it would be such a blessing and it would make us rather distinct in this land to be honest with you amongst God's people so let's not be held back You know, Jesus said to Peter at the end of the gospel, I think it's in John's gospel, you remember where um, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times, you know, oh, glad I wasn't Peter, really am. But every time he said, feed my sheep. See, Peter had been fed for three and a half years. But Jesus saying, the time to be fed is over, Peter. It's time to feed my sheep. And I believe that's God's word to each of you and to me. It's time to feed God's sheep. And there are many more sheep that God is bringing into the sheepfold. So if you're sitting on unfulfilled potential, please don't. Please take a step out. If you're sitting on unfulfilled prophetic word over your life, don't waste a day. Lay hold of it. Tell the person that's going to disciple you. This is what God said to, over my life. And you've got permission to remind me anytime you like. And let others keep speaking it to you. You know what? If you hear it enough, you'll do it. You'll walk in it. Because you know they're with you and believing with you. And faith will rise in you to do greater things than you're doing already. And the things which you've spoken over your life. Just a practical instruction draw from the gifting in each other. There are many people in this room who can help you to lay hold of your gifting. So draw on others and ask them to help you, and they will. Don't waste what God has given you, because what God has given you is necessary for the days that are ahead. It's the victuals, the provision that God has got, not just for you, but for others. The very last thing that Joshua then says in verse 11 is, take possession of the land. So they were to pass through the camp and command the people. They were to prepare their provisions. For three days they would cross over and they were to possess the land. They were instructed to take possession of that which God had given them. I'm going to give you another Hebrew word here. This is the second one today. Yorash. Not your rash, but Y-A-W, not Y-O-U-R, your rash. And interestingly, it means to see something. It means to dispossess 
It means to take possession of. And it does mean to inherit. But it also means to disinherit. And in that word, you've got these two aspects of somebody gaining something and somebody else losing something. Somebody's inheriting something and somebody, at the same time, is disinherited of something. And we can't get away from the fact that for the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan, someone was going to lose. It wasn't a bunch of free land for them just to go in and here's some spare land. This land was occupied. So in order for the Israelites to get their inheritance that God had given them, they were going to have to dispossess and disinherit others from their land. There's no avoiding the battle. They could only inherit by disinheriting others. They could only possess by dispossessing others. And you know what? There is no coexistence between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. There's no place in the universe where light and dark can dwell at the same time. The darkness will always retreat from the light, no matter how big the darkness and how small the light. They cannot coexist. And God's kingdom rule cannot coexist with the rule that Satan has in the hearts of unbelievers. The first, um, second chapter of Ephesians, it talks about the spiritual realms. But it talks about the prince of the power of the air, the strange expression. And what it means is, is that where people are, that's what the Greek word means, where people are, that Satan, even though he's been defeated, has an influence over unbelievers because kingdom, God's kingdom rule isn't in their hearts because they're not spiritually alive as God's people have been. Coming back to Joshua, the land, the people that lived there, they regarded it as their inheritance. So they weren't going to give it up without a fight. The fight couldn't be avoided. And that's why God's instruction to Joshua was not to fear. Because despite the fact they were going to meet resistance, God had given them the land. You know, in Hebrews 11 verse 1, you'll know that scripture really well because it's a definition of faith. Faith is, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you go to the Amplified Version, which my brother Richard reads most of the time, don't you? It takes him a long time to read anything. <laughs> it's the Amplified. But he probably reads more than me. But in there, it uses the phrase title deed. Title deed for faith. Faith is a title deed. And actually, I read recently, just looking around this, that there was an excavation a few decades ago, an archaeological excavation in northern Israel, and someone's home was excavated from first century Palestine. And there was a chest that was found, and on the chest was that word, which means title deed. And in the chest were the title deeds to the properties that this woman, they worked out, had owned. She was a property owner, owned several properties. And she had a box, and the deeds that proved that she owned them, she had this word written on them, and it means title deed. And that's what faith is. The faith that we have is a title deed. God has said, I'm assigning to you territory, boundaries, where you are to go, and you are to claim that territory as your own, and you are to dispossess anything that stands in your way. When Joshua met in uh, chapter 5, Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I believe that was potentially, that was Christ. That was a, an Old Testament appearance of, of Christ. Because when Joshua looks at him, he says, take your sandals off, you're standing on holy ground. And what's interesting for me is that because the angel was there, the commander of God's army, it became holy ground. 
And wherever we're sent, it becomes holy ground. Wherever God says for us to go from here, I mean from here, geographically from here, wherever we go, it's holy ground. So we have to take possession and say, the title deed to this place has been given to us. We're making a declaration to the spiritual realms, to the satanic powers who have influence there. Do you see why you need to be strong and courageous? Because folks, when we do that, we're putting ourselves out there. But the key for us is God's presence. You see, where God's presence is, darkness will always flee. And when we go, we don't turn from the right or the left, but we're submitted to him. And we're drawing on the things that God has put within us. Then we have God's presence with us. And we have God's power with us. We carry his authority as those submitted to him. So the question is, who are we fighting? Well, Ephesians 6 and verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow. I don't know what that means. Sometimes I think we're at the limit, at the edge of our understanding when we speak of these things. When we're all praying together, sometimes people will name individual spirits. And I'm not always comfortable with that, I'll be honest with you. Because I think sometimes we're speaking of things we don't yet fully understand. But I believe that we will. I believe that's why God wants us to come and bring our focus to prayer as a church. To understand how important prayer is. So that we embrace it in our hearts. And it's not something that we just have to do dutifully turn up for a prayer meeting once a month that prayer becomes part of our lives and our culture in this church because prayer is the engine room of the church prayer is the place where we do battle but how do we do battle I don't believe we do battle by trying to get into naming specific spirits that are at work but by declaring what God is doing when Jesus declared his mandate He read from Isaiah and said, God has anointed me to preach the good news. And that's all we need to do, is to go and speak what God has done, to speak of his victory. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armour of God, about putting on the armour of God. He spends the previous two chapters telling us how we can put off the old and put on the new, to bring our lives into submission. And then he says, now, having done all, stand. You see, the way God's people fight, it's to stand on what Christ has already done. It's to stand with the title deed in our hands and say, this territory that God has sent us to, this is our boundary, God has sent us here, it's ours, to the powers of darkness. It's interesting, but none of that armour has anything at the back, but it's always at the front, because God's people are to stand shoulder to shoulder, as soldiers soldiers of old did, to form a united and unbroken front. And that's how we need to be, standing shoulder to shoulder with each other, praying strategically and praying in accordance with the places and the things that God has said he will do. Andrew spoke a few months ago, a few weeks ago, I've lost track now, from Judges 20 about when Israel was told to do something by God but they lost the battle and this time there was no Achan this time they lost and they had to go back to God and say Lord you told us to go and he says go up again and eventually they were successful I remember Andrew saying to us when we step out in these things when we go and fight the battle sometimes there are initial setbacks When we start praying into things, sometimes things seem to get worse. But then we stay faithful, we stand together until we see the victory. And Andrew said, why does God do things this way? Because he wants to teach us to be overcomers. 
And with overcomers, it just doesn't happen first time always. But they have to learn, even when things go wrong and we face disappointments, which we have as a body of people, we face losses and disappointments. But despite those things, that we stand together and declare Christ's finished work. Just as a practical instruction, I just really believe that God is saying we need to learn how to pray effectively. I do believe there are plenty of people in this body who pray really well, prayer warriors. But I believe there are lots of us, and I include me, that need to learn how to pray effectively, need to grow in this. How do we start? We go back to the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, this is something that needs to change in me. I want to be your man or woman that will pray effectively and strategically and see things done. And I believe God wants to, to do something new in us. And I think we need to lay hold of the prophetic instruction of where God is sending us. And I just really want to encourage you. This is a practical instruction where we are reaching out to the boundaries, we're encouraging people here to go. I'm not saying you've got to move house, I'm not saying you've got to be there all the time, but saying that actually we need people to go to the boundaries. We have a few places where we are now, but they're going to be more in the next few years. And I want to encourage you to be before the Lord and say, Lord, where are you sending me to go and lend my support to go and draw from my storehouse, to go and wage warfare with the prophetic word that I have heard in this house. Because I believe there's lots of people here that God wants to send. So my encouragement to you today is, don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss that divine appointment in your life. The time of preparation is over. Now is a time for action. We've seen in Joshua's threefold instruction the necessity for God's rule to come through the heart. And that is true for us. We've seen that provisions are necessary to feed the hungry amongst us and hungry that come in to this body. And we've seen how it's necessary to wage warfare. Would you just stand with me for a minute? Just gives your legs a shake. Shake off the cobwebs. I've asked you to stand because I just want you to engage with me in praying right now. And as I pray, I want you to consider personally. Just consider where you're at. There's no condemnation in the house of God, but there is exhortation and there is encouragement and provocation. And that's what I'm seeking to bring this morning. So I just want everyone in the house to close their eyes. And I just, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you, as I pray, Lord, that you will speak, that you will move our hearts individually. I pray that you will speak to us individually. Father, we want to be obedient and faithful to the calling you've placed in each of us, Lord. And together, as your body in this place, Lord, where you've planted us. Lord, each of us has heard your instruction this morning. And in our hearts, Lord, we just consider now what this means for each of us. Lord, I consider what this means for me. Lord, I pray that every heart in this room will embrace your command to go, to step up, to step out so that we can lay hold of our individual destinies and calling and lay hold of our calling as your people. Lord, our heart's desire is to see men and women, boys and girls, up and down this land transformed by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that in the days ahead, that as each person, Lord, is obedient to come before you on their own, that, Spirit of God, you would start to speak new things, changes that need to come, provisions that need to be drawn from, and places 
where we need to go. And Lord, on behalf of your people, I say, speak to us, Lord. Send us, for we are yours to command for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, folks. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.